everyone, and welcome to Prepare the Way Extras. My name is Carol, and you are joining me for part two of our series on Why Israel. I hope you enjoyed part one, where we discussed why this location? Why did God choose that particular place to plant his people, the place of Israel? Well, today in part two, we take another step, a little deeper step, asking the question, why the Israelites? Why is God called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And this is a question that sometimes many people wrestle with, especially believers. And so we are going to start tackling this. But before we do, we have to start somewhere else first. You know, when it comes to this faith in the God of Israel or the God of the Bible, it's important we understand something. That the Old Testament claims that the God of the Jews or the God of Israel is the God of the whole universe. And that thought was not widely accepted, as you can imagine. In fact, it was quite scandalous to claim that to the surrounding nations, because you see, every nation in that day had its own God. Whether that God was Baal, Moloch, whether that God was Ra or Isis or even Zeus, whoever. And the worship of these gods were their religion. Therefore, religion in these nations is considered national, which means that when those nations went to war, the wars were, re- were even religious. Did you ever think about that? A war in these nations would be a war between the God of one nation and the God of another. And so when this, quote, God of Israel was introduced or he, people started hearing about him, these nations accepted him like any other God of any other nation. He was the God of Israel. So what was the big deal? The big deal was that Israel did something different than the other nations did with their gods. They took things a step further by claiming that their God, Yahweh, was the God above all gods and the only God who really existed, and that he was the only God who made and maintains the entire universe. Well, a claim like that would have been incredibly offensive to other nations, as you can imagine, who believed that their gods controlled crops, fertility, weather, wars, and so on. And the other thing in this claim that they were making even took it a step further. And that was the fact that the God of the universe actually made a relationship with people, that he made himself known to one little group of people on earth in particular and identified himself actually with one family, a father, his son, and his grandson, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So you can imagine how other nations reacted to that, kind of how people today might react to having someone tell them that they have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, right? Well, in order to understand this whole picture, we need to do some unpacking. And to do that unpacking, we have to go back to the book of Genesis, beginning way back there, because something really interesting starts back there. A double thread 
two threads that run right through your Bible and actually right through history, which you may not have noticed before. And you're going to see that these two threads result in people, two different types of people that you read about, but also experience today. And those two threads are a people of flesh and a people of faith. So when we understand this, we will have a better understanding of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Jewish people. Because we are going to take a look at these threads, beginning all the way back with Adam and Eve's sons, Cain and Abel. You see, with Cain and Abel, keep in mind, both of them were asked by God to worship him by offering a sacrifice. Abel brought a sacrifice that was pleasing to God, while Cain did not offer his best. We know the story. Cain became angry and envious of Abel and actually murdered his brother. And as you continue reading this pretty sad story, you actually learn that Cain was dealt a consequence by God where he gave him some type of a mark to have his whole life. We're not told what the mark is, but there is a mark. There is some kind of evidence that Cain is marked because of what he did. But then from there, the story takes a bit of a turn and we begin reading about Cain's generational heritage. Well, many of us skip over genealogy, I'm sure, but if you were to study the remaining of the chapter, you quickly start reading about the generations of Cain, namely the following six generations of Cain's family. But more importantly is what you take away from it. How it was filled with skill, yes, and strength, yes, but his lineage was also filled with arrogance and vengeance and violence. And Cain's character traits are now being passed on, forming a generational heritage or, quote, thread of people operating from their flesh. And when you operate from your flesh, friends, we are operating sometimes uh, where we rely on our own abilities or where we live from carnal desires, where it's that lust of the flesh, the pride of life. It can be the greed Um, that comes uh, that we desire for money or for power. It is a people of the flesh. So that's what was happening in Cain's line. Now, on the other side, something else was happening. Adam and Eve bore a son named Seth. And it's noted that the lineage or generational heritage of Seth was different than Cain's. And it became one where men began to call on the name of the Lord, a very important characteristic of Seth's descendants. People who call on the name of the Lord, friends, become more important than anyone else because they are people through whom God can fulfill his plans and purposes. And that's what started to take place with Seth's line. They became the thread of the people of faith. And these two types of people or threads, they start paralleling each other throughout history. Friends, there's always going to be a people that sow to the flesh, and there's always going to be people that sow to the faith. And we even see this clearly when Jesus teaches his parable about the wheat and the tares. It's the same, it's the same thing. Well, that's what started to happen. You see, the Bible is unique in that it reveals something we often miss. That God has to figure something out. What do you do with a race 
or a group of people or a, quote, thread of people that doesn't want to know you, love you, or obey you, which is what was happening on the earth through one of the lines populating the earth, the line of flesh. Now, before we proceed, there's something really important to keep in mind about the book of Genesis that I, it's really important that we have to stop here for a moment so I can share this with you. See, the book of Genesis actually covers more time than the whole entire book books of the Bible put together. So when we're talking about people, quote, populating the earth, it's a very real situation because people lived very long for very long periods of time back then. And see, from the book of Exodus until Revelation, that's covering a time period of about 1,500 years because Revelation was written in the first century. Whereas the book of Genesis covers the entire history of the world from the very beginning right through to the story of Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, which is why many believers today struggle with the Bible. But when you read the Bible, you realize that time has been greatly compressed in the book of Genesis. It covers many, many centuries as compared to the whole rest of the Bible. And Genesis itself, you're finding this interesting proportion of space given to different parts of history. For example, in chapters 1 through 11, which are very, very short section of the book of Genesis in your Bible, uh, it covers an incredibly long period of time, centuries and centuries, and it talks about many people, and it talks about many nations, and this is where people are populating the earth. But the second half of Genesis, chapters 12 through 50, is much longer section, yet it only covers a few years in comparison, a short period. It only covers a few people, as a matter of fact, and one family, as a matter of fact, four generations of that family, the family of Abraham. And so what happens between these two sections is that the Bible moves from this zoomed out view where it starts with creation and mankind and the flood and all these things. And then all of a sudden, like a camera lens, it zooms in closely to one family. And that's where we're picking up. There is two threads. There are two threads that are coming up through the stories in Genesis that are forming two lines, the line of flesh and the line of faith, a line that Cain's line is demonstrating with flesh and a line that Seth's line is demonstrating through faith. And the earth is growing more populated. But one of those groups want nothing to do with God. So what is God to do? Well, one solution is to wipe him out, which is what he tried to do with the flood. That's where Noah comes into the story. And you may not realize this if you don't read the genealogy, but Noah comes from the line of faith. He comes from the line of Seth, and he is one of his descendants. And how does God describe Noah in the Bible? He describes him as a just man, a perfect in his generations, a man who walked with God. And see, by this point, the Bible tells us that violence had filled the whole earth to the point where God was so sorry he even made man on the earth. I mean, how how catastrophic is that? That God regretted creating humans to fill the earth because it became that bad. And so he took a man from the line of faith and he had him build an ark to save himself and his family because he was counted righteous to God because of his faith. And then the flood hit and filled the earth and we know that story. But that wasn't the answer either. So God chose something else. 
He began restoration through one part of the human race, the thread of the people that had faith. Now Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and through them the threads continued. His son Ham was the one who was cursed when after the flood receded and Noah became a farmer and planted vineyards and then he made wine and he got drunk one night. Ham was cursed because he was looking upon his father's nakedness and then he went and told his brothers about it. Well, it cost him. He received a curse from Noah. But Noah blessed his other two sons, Shem and Jetheth, and even gave Shem precedence over all his brothers. So Ham is cursed, and he has a son named Canaan. Does that sound familiar? Like the land of Canaan, which in the future became the land of Israel? Well, Canaan also had sons. And so this lineage coming from Ham became the Philistines, the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the land of Canaan, right? It was also the region of Egypt. So this became a heritage, friends, that produced men of flesh. These groups of people became known as men of violence. They dabbled in a lot of bad things. There were characters like Nimrod you read about, or stories like the Tower of Babel, a tower of pride where these people could, what, be like God. It's a thread of the flesh. And then through the line of Shem, the son that Noah blessed, you have the major people groups in the Old Testament, namely the people that would become Israel. Because from this line came a man named Eber, whose name gives rise to the term Hebrew. You see where this is going? But then you also have a man in this lineage named Abram or Abraham. Are you beginning to see what God is doing? You have people of the flesh, of pride, of violence versus people of faith. Not perfect people, but people who had faith in God. And where did the people of Ham settle? Well, you guessed it. They settled in what would become the promised land. Their name gives it away, Canaan, the land of Canaan. And so where did the people of Shem settle? Well, they couldn't settle in Canaan yet. God had not yet put that plan in motion. Rather, they settled in places like Persia or Assyria, modern-day Iraq, Lydia in Turkey, places in Arabia. So then when you hear that and you learn that, it won't surprise you then when God called to a man named Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans, which is in this region in modern-day Iraq. This city that he lived in that was right there nestled by the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. And even though this was a pagan nation, God still had his line or his thread of people of faith there. He knew that when he could call on a man from this line, it would be a man who would rise up in faith. And that's what happened. So do you have a little picture in your mind of what's taking place right now? Now I'm going to come back to Abraham in just a bit. But I want to move on and give an overview, a a 30,000 foot view of he and his sons. 
You know, because when you study the stories of these three men that God associates himself with, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob or Israel, he's also called, you'll notice that there is a constant, not a constant, there is a contrast or a counterpoint between these three men and one of their relatives. It's almost as if God is trying to line up each of these men with someone in their family who is running in the opposite thread of faith. Because with Abraham, his counterpoint was his nephew, Lot. And you can read about Lot's situations. With Isaac, you had his counterpoint as his stepbrother, Ishmael. And you can read about that. And with Jacob, you had his counterpoint as his twin brother, Esau. And there's stories with that. And notice how when God is describing these two threads within families, that the relations get closer and closer from nephew to stepbrother to twin. And God is showing us that there are still two lines running through the human race in stark contrast to each other, even within families. And the stories with these three men and their three relatives invite you and invite me to line ourselves up with one or the other, even today. Are you a Jacob or an Esau? Are you an Abraham or a Lot? Are you an Isaac or an Ishmael? Who is your kind? What are you or who are you lining up with? Because when you take a look at these stories of the patriarchs, You're going to notice, friends, that these are pretty ordinary people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They they are born, they fall in love, they marry, they have children, they, they keep sheep and goats and cattle, they disagree, they quarrel, they fight, they live in tents, they build altar, they worship God. And so you start to scratch your head like, what's the big deal with this family? It's not like they're performing miracles or anything supernatural. Well, the difference is that God talks to them and they hold conversations with God and that this God, the God of the universe, makes a friend called Abraham. And this is something people can't cope with, that God makes friends. Just like today, people don't understand the concept of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. God makes friends. And that through this line of faith, God called on one of the descendants, a man named Abram, to be his friend. And he didn't do it because Abraham or his descendants had a claim on God. God chose them out of his own sovereign choice. God freely initiated the relationship with them as he does with all people, even today through his son, Jesus Christ. We always have a choice, friends. We can choose like Cain chose. We can choose which side we want to be on, like Lot chose. And to drive this this point home even further, even deeper, that point of sovereign choice, what you're going to notice in each story of each patriarch and throughout this line of faith in the Bible, how God chooses the younger sons, not the older, to receive his blessing. Do you notice that when you read your Bible? Typically, the older son inherited the family business and the wealth, but God chooses, he chose who would inherit his blessing a little differently. He chose Isaac, not Ishmael. 
He chose Jacob, not Esau, even though (laughs) Jacob cheated the blessing. He chose even David, King David. He chose him, the youngest of all of his brothers, right? To make it clear, nobody has a natural claim on God's love. Even Jesus came for the least of these. And what did he offer? Says it in Peter, to offer an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, reserved in heaven for us, being kept by the power of God. God does not love us, friends, because we're special. We're special because he loves us. And in God choosing the youngest throughout the Bible to inherit the blessing, but especially in these patriarchs, he's sending a strong message. He's sending the message that this is a free gift of inheritance that wasn't earned. Sound familiar? Are you starting to see how Jesus is threaded throughout the whole entire Bible. So none of these three men, Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, had a claim on inheritance because they were not the oldest. But they also did not have a moral claim. They were not perfect people. (laughs) They were very ordinary people like you and me who had their weaknesses. And the Bible doesn't even try to hide those weaknesses. They're written there for everybody to read about, especially how all three of them were liars. I mean, Abraham and Isaac lied through their teeth about their wives to save their skin. Do you remember that? Or Jacob, who was the worst of the three. You know, that that uh, what you sow, you reap? Well, remember, Jacob, J- Jacob woke up next on his wedding night. Let me start that over. Jacob woke up on his wedding night with the other sister, not the one he wanted to marry. (laughs) So, but then you think, here's a man who cheated his own blind aged father and now somebody's cheated him on his wedding night. And so you see that these people, they're very human. They make mistakes and they do the wrong things and sometimes they do right things. So why should God call himself a God after these three men? Because there was one thing that marked them out from everybody else. They had faith. They're coming from that line of faith, but they're known for their faith. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, even records the lineage of people who had faith. These men believed in God. And my friends, God can do wonders through people who believe. And it's through this thread of faith coming from Seth coming from Shem, through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, imperfect people, where God would establish his plan of salvation for all mankind through Jesus Christ, a Jew. For Abraham, I want to return to him. His faith was counted to him as righteousness. And this even says it in the book of Hebrews. He was made right through his faith in God. And both Isaac and Jacob shared that faith in different ways, of course, because they're different people with different personalities. My faith is not going to look like my husband's or my parents'. My children's faith is not going to look like mine. It's the same thing. And here's a man, Abraham, called by God out of Ur of the Chaldees, where he lived, modern-day Iraq. Now, at the time, this city was incredibly impressive. Highly sophisticated culture, very advanced for its time. And yet God reaches down and calls to a man in a city like that who probably was pretty content where he was. 
and tells him, I want you to live in a tent for the rest of your life. And the man was 75. Would you do that? Would you go leave the comforts of your city or home or family and live in a tent somewhere where God was bringing you into a land you knew nothing about? But he left because he's a man of faith. He's from that line of faith. And thank God he did, my friends, or we wouldn't be sitting here listening today. And Abraham even left with some of his family members, including his father, who only got about halfway and they had had enough. So he left them at Haran, which is in a southern part of Turkey, present-day Turkey. And he continued on with Lot, his nephew. And so he believed God, and he left for this new land. He even believed God could give him a son, even though he and his wife Sarah were of old age, way past the years and age of childbearing. But he believed God. However, his faith was tested because he had to wait 11 years and still there was no child. So he and Sarah took matters into their own hands and he slept with her maidservant and that's how they had their son Ishmael. But Ishmael was not the child God promised them that he would bring through he and Sarah. He was not a child of the faith or a child of the promise. He was a child of the flesh because they took matters into their own hands. And we are starting to see now this familiar thread. God didn't choose Ishmael for the line of faith. He chose Isaac for that. But don't think he slighted Ishmael. He blessed him. God promised Ishmael that he'd be the father of many nations and produce 12 princes. And guess what? He did. And he is the father of the Arab nations today. Isaac eventually came, years later still, and then Abraham had to exercise faith again when God asked him if he'd be willing to sacrifice his son Isaac, the child of promise, the child of the line of faith. Would Abraham have enough faith to do that? And then when we look further at each of his sons, in Isaac and in Jacob, there are stories that show men who, in spite, my friends, of all of their weaknesses and failures and mixture of good and bad, they shine as men who believed in God. They had faith, and therefore, when you look at the contrast in their relatives, you find people of flesh rather than faith. You find materialists rather than those with spiritual vision. When Lot and Abraham had a disagreement and they chose to part ways, Abraham gave Lot first choice. Where did Lot choose? Where his eyes were fixed. What appealed to his eyes? He looked at the Jordan Valley and it was lush and it's a jungle and it's beautiful and abundant. And he's like, I'll choose that. And Abraham said, fine, I'll stay in the mountains. But God's in the mountains. He went after his eyes. And you see that not just in Lot, but you saw it also in Ishmael. What about Esau? He would rather have a plate of soup than a blessing from his father. And we see that same Esau syndrome today. People want everything now. We are willing to go after what's immediate and at our fingertips or not hard rather than do the work of getting to know our God. The letter to the Hebrews actually says, do not be like Esau who sold his birthright for stew. Don't do that, my friends. So we see these three men of faith contrasted with relatives of flesh, and that kind of separation runs through most families even today. Those who live by faith and those who live by flesh, we all have it. 
So when you read your Bibles, look for these threads, flesh and faith, and not just with men, but also with their wives and the priests. The priests come up through these families too, and so on. And you begin to understand why God says, I belong to this side of the family and not this one. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I have chosen people from the thread of faith, people who call on the name of God. And that, my friends, is why he is called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that is why he aligned himself with Israel, the Israelite people, and the Jewish people. And that is also why we align ourselves with them also, because we too come through Jesus Christ, his son, and what? Faith in him that immediately lines us up in that thread of history, the thread of faith. I hope that blessed you today. Join us for part three when we talk about the Abrahamic covenant. God bless you. Thank you.